All right. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 7, please? Matthew chapter 7. Our Lord has uh, exposed the error of the Pharisees' teaching in relationship to the law, revealing the law was spiritual. The problem was the evil heart of man in chapter 5. Then Jesus pointed out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees regarding their self-righteous practices towards God to be seen by man in order to appear righteous before men in chapter 2. Now Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount with the subject of personal judgment on various levels. Sometimes people think that some of these things are not related, but the whole chapter deals with judgments and discernment. In verse 1 through 5, we have critical judgment is forbidden, as we'll see. In verse 6, the sermon and discretion for judgment is commanded. Then in 7 through 12, you have judgmental spirit and discretion resolved by prayer. There's the connection. 13 and 14, decision on the gate we enter and the road we travel. Discernment, judgment. 15 through 20, the judgment and discernment for false prophets is essential. 21 through 23, judgment of ourselves to see if we have entered the kingdom through the right gate. And then 24 to 29, their judgment to see if your house is built on the rock, obeying God's word, or the sand, being just a hearer of God's word. And so I hope that you've noticed the Lord's method of teaching. He gives a principle, explains it, illustrates it, and then applies it. So let's begin here in chapter 7, verse 1 through 6. We are here the counsel about critical judgments and discreet judgment. He says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The prohibition is here against not mere judgment. But the unbeliever, as you know, always uses this verse out of context to rebuke the believer for making a moral or ethical judgment on society or other people. The warning is against having a critical, censorious judgment here. This is the context. Finding constant fault in everything even giving a final verdict of condemnation. A person who finds always something wrong, there's always a negative, there's always, this is what it's talking about. Remember the backdrop is the Pharisees. This does not prohibit the judgment of right and wrong or a person from confronting another person about their lifestyle of sin, particularly if they're call themselves a brother or a sister. This is the very heart of the gospel for us to proclaim people to repent from their sins. But the world seems to be uncomfortable, especially today in our cultural relativity, our political correctness. And so we um, um, get all uncomfortable and tweaked out. And yet, the gospel is very, very, very clear. We are to make judgments. We're to judge ourselves. We're to judge others. We're to judge um, sin so that people may get saved. We're to proclaim the gospel under God's, under God's love. And the context, again, is, of this is the practice of the Pharisees, remember, who were self-righteous and exalting themselves above other individuals, being hypocrites before God and man, desiring only to be seen of man. They love 
the street corners as we've seen. They love praying out there. They love giving their money in a way that that uh, they would be seen and applauded. And all those things we saw in chapter 6, these are things that are assumed that are to be going on in the life of Christians. Our giving, our praying, our fasting. These are Christian principles and practices that go on. The problem again is the heart of man. Jeremiah 17:9, the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. Jesus speaks about it in Matthew 15 as we'll get there. From it comes adulteries, fornications, everything. Um, the heart is what God is after all the time. Now, there are several reasons for the prohibition of ongoing criticism, though they're not given here. First of all, it is a sin. Second of all, it hinders our spiritual life because we are being... Uh, we're putting ourselves in the place of God as we know all things, and um, we don't ever know the motive of the heart. Now, that doesn't mean that I cannot judge actions. I can judge actions. If someone gets up and hits somebody in the mouth, I'm going to confront you. Now, I may not know why you hit them, but it's wrong for you to get up and hit anybody, regardless of the reason or motive, right? After talking, we may find out some motive, but the action is still wrong in what you do. So it's very important. And the world pressures us and tries to con us as believers, and that should not be so. Um, we all have the danger of partiality also, being a respecter of persons. Uh, Romans 14, 3 through 4 says, Let not him who eats, despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received them. Who are you who judges another man's servants? To his own master he stands or falls, indeed he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And there's a perfect example that Paul is using when it comes to what you eat and what you drink. There are certain things that are not going to harm you, whether you eat fish or whether you eat just vegetables or whether you eat meat, none of that has anything to do with your spirituality. So uh, you have to be discerning, but there even in Corinth where there is cultural things that are being imposed with the religious aspect of eating in feasts of idols, then it's a whole different matter because what's behind that is the worship and the partaking of demons. And that's a whole different context, so we have to be wise. Now, notice in verse 2, the result of such critical judgment is reaping to what one sows. People will judge you by the same standard of judgment if you are a person who is um, always finding fault or criticizing, then it will be measured back to you again. It's just, we have sayings like what goes around comes around, right? Sowing and reaping is the same thing. Uh, Romans 2, 1 says, Therefore, you are inexcusable man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same thing. People will measure out to you and I, the same lack of love and mercy that we give out. The scripture says, so speak and so do as those who will judge by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy, James says, to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, James 2, 12 through 13. It's easy, and, and the thing is that when we see a failure, a fault, or a sin, and, and we're, we can justify that sin, and our sin looks ugly on, on other people. Like, my sin on you? How dare you? On me, I, I can give you a reason why. And I can justify it. And that's the nature of our sinfulness. It blinds us. It tweaks us. And so we're not merciful people. 
then that's what we'll be known for. Now, don't confuse what today is turned around because of the politically correctness and because of the watering down of the gospel, that when you give God's standard of the word, they call you self-righteous or that you're a legalist. This is what's being pushed today because the church is so watered down with the emergent watered down gospel. So when you call them on their corrupt liberalness, they call you self-righteous or that you're a legalist. That is completely out of context. That's wrong. So make sure you know the difference. Now, three and four, the warning points out one's own fault and failures here. Notice he says, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or now, or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look at a plank uh, in your brother's eye. So in other words, um, here, don't be blind to your own major shortcomings while seeing others' minor ones in verse 3. The distinct difference is indicated in size between the speck, a straw or a twig, to a plank, a beam. The person is blind in his our own sin, and it's so huge that how can you even see out of it? Verse 4, don't be hypocritical and self-righteous by attempting to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. It takes arrogance and pride to correct someone when one is over uh, their own eye this big old plank and they're overcome with sin or, or the like sin themselves. This is the, the teaching here. The rebuke is in the fact that the beam would hinder, as I said earlier, a person to see something so small in the life of another. In verse 5, he says, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the, the speck from your brother's eye. So the judgment pronounced here over one who is self-righteous in their judgment. The person is declared to be a spiritual hypocrite here. The word hypocrite, as you know, indicates an actor on a stage pretending to be someone else other than himself by wearing a mask, you have the old mask of the smile and the frown in the old theater. That's where it comes from. The person is instructed to do what is first necessary to remove the plank from their own eye, their great sin. Then they can help their brother. You know, the Greeks sometimes would hold a trial in the darkness if it was a difficult one so as to hear the facts only not to be moved by appearance. We are so moved by appearance who a person is and what they have and what we can get from them. And so um, again this goes back to the heart this whole Sermon on the Mount deals with our heart completely. In verse 6, you have the instruction to the disciple, and it's to make a discreet judgment on preaching the gospel. Once again, some people don't see the connection. It's judgment, discernment through this whole chapter. Verse 6 says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them, under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Don't be undiscerning as to those who do not value the gospel, the beginning of verse 6 says. 
The holy and the pearls represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. The dogs and swines are the unbelievers, the religious, those who don't know Christ. Jesus told the twelve as he sent them out to shake the dust off their feet if the gospel was rejected in Matthew 10, 14. Go into a house. Don't be partial to the house. Wherever you go, abide there. Whatever they give you, give you. And the Lord will bless it. But if they, do, if they reject you, then shake the dust off your feet. And he speaks about it a bit better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them in the days of judgment. Rejecting the gospel. The dogs and swines or hogs are unclean. Again, the parallel is made between those who are cleansed by the Lord in repentance and those who are not because they have rejected the gospel. The reason is, notice, not for being self-righteous, the end of verse 6, but rather being spiritually discerning about people who are profane towards the gospel, trampling it underfoot, not considering it, binding authority or precious. Considering, well, that's just your opinion. That just, men just wrote it. It's a book like any other book. And they just, and, and we're, talk, we're not talking about just one time. We're talking about people you've ministered unto and, 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 and they understand. Um, Paul did this with the Jews. They had understanding of the scriptures. Tearing you in pieces, criticizing, demeaning, and writing you off as a crazy religious person. And so it's really an insult to God. Paul and Barnabas again declared this to the Jews in the synagogue. In Acts 13, 45 through 47. In chapter 18, verse 5 through 6, Paul says, You, you revealed yourself to be unworthy of the gospel. And he turned from them, the end of the gospel, of the book of Acts, the last chapter. As Paul was in prison and nobody was hindered from coming to him. And the Jews and Nephi says, I, I just turn you over to the Lord and I'm, I'm done. I'm going to the Gentile. Not casting your pearl before the swine. And there's many people, our friends, our loved ones, um, who we share and share and they reject, reject, and and there comes a point where they become very disrespectful, very blasphemous, and it's time when you need to just back off and pray, and that's it. Because they are trampling underfoot the gospel. Verse 5 says, Be discreet about your judging, 1 through 5. And verse 6 says, Be discreet about your preaching. Very important. Now, 7 through 12, we have the counsel about discerning the faithfulness of God to prayer. 7 through 8, the believer is to be dependent on God. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who has receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be Open. The word ask means to beg or to entreat. The context is related to judging for discernment, prudence, and wisdom. Verse 1 through 6, there's a connection. Okay? Jesus never used this word for himself in prayer, for he was on an equal level with the Father. Ask, seek, knock are all in the present imperative. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, indicating diligence, steadfastness, obedience in and to prayer. It seems that we, um, we, we try to do everything we can, and once everything fails, then we say, well, we better pray. When it is to be the first thing, when something happens, we're to just automatically turn to God, Lord, give me wisdom, Lord, guide me. That's to be our 
immediate response and dependence to God, the outcome of all three is one of obtaining here. God is faithful to answer prayer. We have Daniel who sought the Lord in prayer. We have Joseph. We have example after example. The parables teach both persistency in prayer and the faithfulness of God in prayer. The context of parables will always be determined by the punchline. And parables do one of two things. They compare or they contrast. Remember the parable of the uh, judge who didn't fear God or man and that widow came and wanted him to do justice for her? Well, that parable is a contrast, not a comparison. Many people teach it as a comparison, and they teach persistency or importunity in prayer. That's not what it's teaching. This man didn't fear God or man, but she kept bugging him so much, he did justice for her to get her off his back. The punchline is, this guy may have to be bugged to answer and do justice, but not God. It's a contrast. So it's very important. Many parables are destroyed because they're taught the opposite of what they're really teaching. Prayer is an incredible, powerful weapon that God has given to us. You see Moses in the wilderness when the Amalekites attacked them. And Aaron and Erdogan holding up his hands. Joshua's out fighting. As long as his arms are up, they prevail. When his arms are down, they're being pounced on. And when we lift our hands to God, it, it says two things. I surrender and I'm depending on you. I'm trusting you. We're to pray without ceasing, Paul tells the Thessalonians. The confirmation of prayer always being answered by God. Verse 8. We may not like the answer, but God answers through his word or prayer. Sometimes we have our own idea what the answer should be. And sometimes all we're looking is for yes. And when God says no, we say, get thee behind me, Satan. Because that's not what I want. God does answer prayer. And a no from God is as important and as valuable as a yes from God. Because it's what's best for my life. 1 John 5.14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Our failure is in not asking at times, not obeying or not liking, as I said, the answers from God. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that it may be spent in your own pleasures. Our Prayers are selfish. They're self-centered. Sin also obstructs prayer. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. Bad marital relationships hinders prayer. 1 Peter 3, 7. There's a lot of things that can hinder my prayer life. I want to make sure I enter the course of God with confession and worship and Praising him, and then I may come and lay things at his feet. All three here in verse 8 are intensified. He asks, revealing dependency and receiving. He who seeks reveals diligence, and he who knocks reveals persistency. It will be open. God's timing and God's will are two different things. Things. It is the will of God about your life of many things, but the timing is the key thing. 
Hannah was barren. God needed a man. So she went to God in prayer. And once she aligned herself with the will of God, God allowed her to conceive God's will, God's timing. Kill two birds with one stone. And this happens often. Now verse 9 to 12, we have the illustration, and it's of the faithfulness of God to prayer. 9 says, or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give you things to those, give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. And so, there are two rhetorical questions. The correct answer for both is no. The teaching is from the lesser to the greater, man to God. Verse 9, the loving earthly father would not deny his own son bread if he asked him. Would he give him a stone? No. A loving earthly father would not give his son a serpent if he asked him for a fish. In verse 10, notice 11 is the application. It's by contrast, again, from the lesser to the greater. The word evil is not only sinful, but having natural and moral limitations and imperfections of human sinners. And it delights in that evil. It's the word for Satan, Poneros. The wicked one. How much more our Heavenly Father is perfect, giving only the best to us. Have we been evil? How much more? Therefore, look at verse 12. This is the conclusion of the matter and looks back to verse 1 through 12. Many people miss the connection. Notice what verse 12 says. Therefore, conclusion of what precedes, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. You're to love your neighbor as yourself, all of us. Jesus puts this in the positive, though. The law of the prophets he talked about in chapter 5, verse 17. Forgiving one another in chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. As we forgive our trespasses, right? We're supposed to forgive our trespassers, those who sin against us. Many have put this principle in the negative. What you do not want others to do to you, don't do to them. Aristotle, Socrates, Confucius. But Jesus puts it in the positive. Whatever you want men to do to you, you also do to them. So if you put it in the conclusion of all that's preceded, it's the sincerest spirit and all that follows. That here's the conclusion. This is the law of the prophets. Now when you get to verse 13 down to 29, and we went, did this in depth this morning. So we'll go through it in general. If you weren't here, I recommend you get it. But you have the counsel to make the needed decision to enter the kingdom here. Verse 13 and 14, the call is to discern and judge the two gates and roads in life. 13 says, enter by the narrow gate. For why is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction 
And there are many who go and buy it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. The invitation to enter the narrow gate and way leads to life. Notice in verse 13, this is the imperative command. This is a must. This is the will of God. This is a a, a heartbroken father crying out to his wayward children. He wants them to be reconciled, redeemed, and enter the focus and and the sphere of his love so he can bless them. The broad gate and way lead to destruction, verse 13 says, to ruin. Here on earth, ruining one's life, let alone when one dies and ends up in eternity separated from God. Many choose the broad gate and way as they remain in that state of sinfulness that they are born into. When you walk into the gate that's narrow, it's a choice by discovery, by the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. When a person's born into this world, they are born in a sinful state. They are born lost and dead in trespasses and sins. Humanity just drifts into this gate that is broad, wide. Notice many enter in. The majority of humanity will be lost, not because God has predestined them, but because they reject the gospel and to walk in the gate. The reason few find the narrow gate in verse 14 in the difficult way is because it's not appealing. It's not what satisfies our sin nature our will, our flesh. It's the difficult, the compressed way. The other one is spacious, deceptive, thinking you're secure, you're safe when you're in the greatest danger. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, Joshua 24, 15, Matthew 5, 20. All speak about this. The word find there in verse 14 is a participle indicating perception of what is discovered. And as I said, it's by grace, the gate leading to life, a present active tense. It's a decision that we make in a moment of time, but it affects us for all eternity. It is a window time. Today is a day of salvation, not tomorrow. Tomorrow is promised to no person. And the rejection of the gospel once, twice, three, four, five, a hundred times conditions the heart to become harder and harder and harder against that gospel. Pharaoh is a classic example in Romans chapter 8. Exodus says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then we read for the first time, and the Lord Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh. When Pharaoh hardened his heart, he stiffened it. He resisted. When God hardened his heart, he affirmed his decision, and respected his choice. People say, well, that's not fair of God. Really? Would it be fair if he forced you to go to heaven? Well, no. Well, he gives you the choice. And he honors your choice. You have all the right to go to hell, but you don't really have to go there. But if you keep rejecting and insulting and stepping on their foot in the gospel and you cross that line, he says, that's it. Why do you blame him? Guarantee that he's more patient with you than you have been with him. Guaranteed. 
were to strive, to agonize, to enter into the gospel, Luke 18, 18. And many other portions of scripture. Jesus is the, the door to the sheepfold, John 10. We enter in through him, no one else. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's only one meteor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is no other name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 Only way, only name, only mediator. Why do some people see the gospel as confusing and unclear? To me it's very clear and very narrow. One name, one way, one mediator. No one else. But that offends the intellect of man, the religiosity of man. And so he rejects the gospel. And what they do is they accuse God of being unjust, narrow-minded. How can he be a God of love if we see all this war and pain and deformities? Well, what we see today is not the world that God intended we see a result of man's rebellion begetting with Adam who passed on sin and death and sin nature to all of us. This is the result of this world, not what God intended. And so in verse 15 to 20, we have the call and it's to discern false and true teachers by the way of prophets here. Verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men um, gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so. I'm sorry, verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. I'm sorry, verse 17. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, conclusion, by their fruits you will know them. Verse 15, false prophets will come disguising themselves to hide their true motives. Just like when someone wants to rip you off for your car or on the telephone or something, they, they present themselves as something they want you to think they are not. <laughs> because they have an agenda. Outer sheep clothing means their lives are false. Here in 15. The word beware, as you know, means simply to take heed. Another imperative, this chapter has imperative after imperative, present active, command. Literally keep holding your mind from, watch out for. And Jesus constantly warned about false teachers and prophets. The pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, Titus. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. False teachers, false prophets. Second Peter, all about false prophets in the latter days. Inward, they are ravenous wolves, verse 15 says. The focus is on their character, not teaching in this context here. Self-interest, self-gain, self-exaltation. Once again, Jesus speaks about it specifically in Matthew 24, 11 through 24. The time of tribulation and great tribulation, Mark 13, Luke 21, when the Antichrist will reign and there will be, he will be the epitome of deception. Sheep in the midst of wolves. That's how he sent his disciples out, Matthew 10, 16. The Dedeke is the teaching of the apostles around 100 A.D., which simply means doctrine or teaching. And they laid down certain things, how to 
detect false prophets and teachers. And some of the things were that they would could not stay more than two to three days. If they asked for money, they were false prophets. If they called out a big banquet, fine, but they couldn't eat of it. <laughs> Interesting. And we have the same shenanigans today from people from the pulpit, constant begging, constant manipulating in the kingdom of God. No different, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing has changed. Notice in 16 through 18, the illustration of contrast. In 16, you will know them by their fruits. Their lives are contrary to the kingdom of God as grapes and figs growing on bushes and with thorns is a contradiction. Not only their life, but their teaching. They contradict the word of God. The principles of God. The kingdom of God. Verse 17, the contrast of a good tree versus a bad tree is evident by their fruits. Teaching. Conduct. How they live. This does not mean that a false person represented by the bad tree cannot be transformed or repent. There are some people that have been deceivers and God has saved them. Praise God. As long as you're alive and God has not given you up, there is hope for every individual. Verse 18, the tree will bear after its own kind notice. This does not mean that a Christian, again, cannot do something bad or fall into sin. We have David and his great failure with Bathsheba, and he killed Uriah. This is a clear contrast of false and true persons here in the context. At 19, trees bear no fruit, and when they don't, they're cut down and they're burned. Speaks of the judgment that God will bring upon them, the final judgment of the white throne judgment. False professors will be cast into the lake of fire, not because God predestined them, but because they did not repent to enter the kingdom of God. Revelation 20, the white throne judgment. Lake of fire, Matthew 25, 41. It was created for Satan and his angels, never for any individual. Look at 20. In conclusion, therefore, know and examine their lives and their teaching. Very important. An African girl told of how they witnessed to people who didn't know Jesus. She said they would send a family to live among them so they could see Jesus. Try that one on for size. Paul says, you are our epistle, read of all men. When you get to verse 21, the 23, we have the revelation of Jesus about some not entering the kingdom. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare... To them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those vocalizing the mere profession of the lordship of Jesus here will not enter the kingdom of God, only those doing the will of the Father. The will of God is found in the word of God, ladies and gentlemen. That's why it's the plumb line to judge everything. 
that declares to be of God, then drop the plumb line and measure it. Lord, Lord, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 46 says. The call to judge oneself, if you be in the kingdom, is very important. You want to make sure you're lined up with the right road and the right gate. If you do any traveling when you fly, your schedule may say gate 13. But if you don't ever check your gate when you get there and recheck it, you can be at the wrong gate. (laughs) And your plane is in the right gate. It happens frequently, especially today. They just change things and you're left out in left field. Those doing signs and wonders or manifesting gifts of prophesying and casting out demons does not mean that they know the Lord or acknowledged or are acknowledged by the Lord. Verse 22. You have to be careful. I believe in miracles. I believe God can heal. We have seen God do some incredible things through the years. But God is sovereign. We anoint you with oil. We lay hands on you. We pray. We trust God. And then God is sovereign. Sometimes he heals. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he uses doctors. And sometimes he just takes people home. It's not in the hands or the oil. It's simply a step of faith. And yet, the sensationalism of miracles and signs and wonders are always pushed to motivate people. The extreme Pentecostal movement. As you know, Pastor Chuck came out of Foursquare, which is Pentecostal, to an extreme Now, we as Calvary Chapel are Pentecostal, means that we believe in the gifts for today that they are Pentecost, okay? But we believe that to be exercised decent and in order, not in a circus-type atmosphere. And we don't believe that God does signs and wonders to save people. People are saved by the gospel, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. You're saved by grace through faith, and not of yourself is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. People are not to follow signs and wonders. The word is proclaimed, and then God may do signs and wonders in the life of people. You understand? The late John Wimber of the Vineyard Ministries, who used to be part of Calvary, he came out of a friend's church background, which are Quakers. And he was amazed at the Word of God and what God was doing. But he kept going to the other extreme. And he, with Wagner, taught over here in Fuller Seminary, Signs and Wonder course, and they would teach people how to do signs and wonders, power evangelism, they called it. Even professing they could teach people how to raise the dead. Be careful of this stuff. Or the people tell you, the Lord told me to tell you to give me a thousand dollars. Or the Lord told me to tell you you're going to marry me. Or the Lord told me to tell you to go to Africa. He has a great work for you. And you just go, you just do it. Then forgive me, but you deserve it. You check with the Lord. You check the word. How many gullible people are ripped off, merchandise, destroyed because somebody's playing Holy Spirit, thinking they're spiritual, they're carnal, they're deceivers. Be careful. Be careful. Jesus never knew them. Never knew them. Notice that. The context is the clear distinction of true and false individuals. 
This does not mean a believer cannot be deceived for the very warning and instruction is to not be deceived. Every warning in the epistles is to believers, not to be deceived. First Timothy 4.1, the latter time the Spirit clearly speaks. The latter times many will fall away from the faith. The Spirit prophesies it. Will depart from the faith. Very simple. There are believers that are deceived because they do not check it to the Word of God. Sin can deceive you. Satan can deceive you. The world can deceive you. You can deceive you. Many things can deceive you. When we get to verse 24 to 29, you have the parable of the two foundations, the rock and the sand here. 24 says, therefore, conclusion. It's all hooked together with judgments, discernment. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Verse 24, the conclusion, therefore, is stated by Jesus, the one obeying his word is a wise man building his house on the rock. Jesus and his word are synonymous. The solid foundation is in obedience. Whoever Man is a free moral agent having responsibility to choose the narrow gate to be saved unto obedience, not predestined to go to hell by God. God never violates man's will. He must choose for all. Every person born into this world deserves hell. Every man and woman. And if God chooses a few to go to heaven sovereignly, and sovereignly he rejects the majority of humanity, God cannot be good, he cannot be just, he cannot be holy, he cannot be kind. He's just contradicted his attributes, ladies and gentlemen. He died for the whole world, John 3.16 says. 1 John 2.2 2 says, And He, Jesus, is the propitiation, listen, for our sins, the believer. And not only our sins, but the whole world. Jesus did not die for the chosen frozen. He died for the whole world, and each person makes a decision whether they're going to go to heaven or to hell by the response to the gospel. Very, very important. The conclusion refers to what precedes from verse 13 to 23. In a broader context, all the way back from verse 1 to 23, notice the stability and perseverance is due to their trust in the foundation the rock, Jesus, verse 25, the storms of life, rain, the floods, the winds, they will come, but they will come through and not fall. Through the floods, through the fires, through the winds, you will not perish, the Old Testament declares. And verse 26, the one who is only a hearer of God's word is building on sand and is guaranteed a weak house and they are declared to be foolish. The inability to discern this with the eye is important. 
a structure can stand that seems to be solid. But if it's built on soil that can liquefy because water is way below in earthquakes or oscillation of movement, it will raise that water to the surface and become like sand and whatever structures on it, it will be sucked in. If it's built on a rock, that will not happen. Look at 27. The instability and destruction is due to not being a doer of the words of Jesus. Their fall is great. The focus is on doing and obeying, which only a believer can do. A non-believer cannot obey and do. They are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Remember we began chapter 5, 1 through 12? The B-attitudes, not do-attitudes. The only reason you can do is because you are a Christian. No non-believer can manifest those beatitudes the very first one poor in spirit you realize your poverty of spirit to cry up to god for repentance and salvation that's the foundation in 28 and 29 the lord finishes his sermon on the mount he says and so it was when jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The words when Jesus had ended here, that phrase appears five times in the Gospel of Matthew. Here, 11, 1, 13, 53, 19, 1, and 26, 1. They mark natural divisions of the Gospel after certain events of his ministry. The people were astonished, struck with amazement because he did not teach like the scribes power, authority. He chose certain examples of the law and says, you have heard that it has been said by those of old. But I say unto you the ultimate authority, the final authority, so when people say certain things about the word and they say, well, I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I don't believe that God killed the whole world. So examine the, not only the Bible and the Old Testament, but the words of Jesus. Jesus believed in the flood. Jesus believed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus believed in the judgment of both. Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. Jesus believed in Noah and the, the sea monster that swallowed him, everything else. He is the ultimate authority, not a PhD. Keep that in mind. You remember that Sergius Paulus in Acts 13, 12 was amazed when Paul, um, he was a proconsul of that island, and Elamis the sorcerer was trying to hinder him from coming to the gospel, and Paul pronounced that he a curse of blindness upon Elamas, and he was amazed, and he believed the authority and the power of the gospel as Jesus uses individuals to proclaim the word of God. God sovereignly does as he wills, using the gifts, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, so on and so forth, to manifest his goodness. So Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount. This is for you and I, not for the kingdom age. The kingdom is present and yet to come. And we are 2,000 years down the road from the day of Pentecost. <laughs> and our salvation is closer than when we first believed. And so we should be looking up and seeing the things that are going on in the world and occupy until Jesus come and to be warning people of the judgment to come because he loves them. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for tonight. Thank you for everybody here, Lord, over the internet, those that are listening. And Lord, we pray that if there's anybody who doesn't know you, that you would speak to their hearts and convict them of their sin, allow them to see your love and grace and your desire to forgive them and to save them, Lord. 
So I lift them to you right now, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you see yourself as a sinner, it's by God's grace. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, who died for your sins, that's God's grace. That's a work of His Spirit. Now, He asks you, do you want to be saved? And you have, must make that decision. Will you enter the narrow gate? Or will you remain in the broad way? That decision will determine where you spend eternities, ladies and gentlemen. Or maybe you're over the internet. If you want to repent of your sins because you believe what I've just declared to you, but the Bible teaches, then you can call upon His name right now through the simple prayer of repentance. This is your prayer to Him. And He's going to save you right now. Father, I come to You in Jesus' name. I ask You to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.